Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Oh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back in Phoenix. I was just here in um, September. Uh, my good friend, Professor Chabati Rosh Samuelson, I'm sure some of you know her, at ASU, uh, had a wonderful conference. There's a, 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 um, a library of volumes, I think they're about there 20 now, called the Library of Living Jewish Philosophers, and I was very honored to be the subject of volume three, and she had a wonderful gathering at ASU uh, in September. Uh, where a number of us were uh, present. Uh, so it had been a long time since I'd been to Phoenix, but it's a pleasure to be back. And especially, I didn't really even know of the uh, existence, let alone the vibrancy of the uh, Valley Bet Midrash. Uh, just met with Rabbi Yankelovich. Uh, but all of these things are, are wonderful things to see that uh, Jewish learning and dealing with serious topics and I can see that there's a variety of people here from a variety of different backgrounds. I've been told that, but I can literally see it. Uh, it's, uh, all of these things are uh, what, at least for me, makes life interesting. Let me begin uh, with a real-life incident that uh, happened to me just about a month ago. I'm a rabbi, and in fact, I was for 23 years a, a pulpit rabbi before I became a, a full-time academic. Uh, but I daven in the, uh, what's called the downstairs minion, a smaller minion in a very large modern Orthodox uh, synagogue. A wonderful group of people. Uh, and one of the members of our minion, uh, uh, a very distinguished psychiatrist woman, uh, uh, whose son, interestingly enough, had been a student of mine at the University of Toronto, came to me and uh, very, very uh, upset. And she said the following, that the uh, College of Physicians in the province of Ontario has issued a directive because the Supreme Court of Canada had declared that not only is suicide no longer a crime, uh, which is always something like that in the books because it's a victimless crime, but nonetheless, it's no longer a crime, but that actually people have the right not only to uh, commit suicide, but people have the right to, in effect, ask a physician to authorize and implement uh, their suicide. Now, there has to be some kind of examination, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but this was the factor. And this uh, distinguished uh, psychiatrist, as I say, her, her son was, was a student of mine, uh, a, a very observant uh, Jewish woman, uh, said that she is extremely upset by this because this violates her conscience as a Jew. 
It violates her conscience as a Jew. Even to the fact where they said, all right, the physician doesn't have to, if the it's contrary to your views and your religious views, which are guaranteed by the Canadian Charter, which is our Constitution, uh, not only uh, is it the case that you don't have to yourself do it, but you do, according to this directive, you do have to refer the patient to somebody who will authorize this factor. And she said that her instincts as an observant Jew were something that were contrary uh, to this uh, directive. Uh, and undoubtedly, uh, this is going to be something which is going to be challenged in the courts. Uh, and uh, my legal friends tell me that there is little doubt that this will reach the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and I'm, something similar is going to happen in the United States, and it's going to reach the Supreme Court of the, uh, uh, of the United States. So I said, well, what, what, what have you done about it so far? And she told me uh, with great consternation that she consulted several local rabbis um, who basically said, well, they didn't want to get involved, and it's, it's a complicated issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she was shocked by the fact that they were not willing to, what she felt, take a principled Jewish stand on this great issue of, of, of conscience. And so therefore, she actually consulted with a group that is filing in the courts a challenge to this directive of the College of Physicians of Ontario. And it is being filed by the Christian Medical and Dental Society. The Christian Mental and Dental Society. And she said, under those circumstances, she said she felt that maybe these rabbis didn't want to be involved because it was being sponsored by a Christian group, etc., etc. Would I do something? I said, what do you want me to do? She said, I want you to get in touch with, or they're going to have actually them get in touch with you, of those who are filing this uh, uh, case in the, uh, uh, in the uh, Supreme in the Supreme of the, of the province, the the appellate court actually uh, in uh, in Ontario, and would you be willing to prepare an affidavit? I said yes, I would. Uh, and indeed, uh, last uh, Friday, I prepared the affidavit. It was back and forth. It was actually interesting affidavit. Those of you who are lawyers, I'm used, I've, I've done other affidavits because I, I function somehow as kind of a, a, a public spokesman for a Jewish point of view. A Jewish point of view. There's many, most of these are not the Jewish point of view, a Jewish point of view. And usually with an affidavit, you go to the lawyer's office and the lawyer asks you some questions and you answer the questions and they prepare it and you sign it and it's notarized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, they actually wanted me to compose the questions uh, and provide my answers, which, which I did. Uh, it was a little back and forth in terms of the language, uh, and this past Friday uh, I signed the affidavit. It was notarized by an attorney in, uh, in Toronto. So the question becomes, what is involved here? Is this psychiatrist, 
Is the psychiatrist someone whose Jewish instincts, which have informed her conscience, is this something that actually has the grounding or endorsement of the normative Jewish tradition, which we call the halakha? Are her instincts correct or incorrect? And it's very important to understand what, what, what is meant by conscience. Many people think that conscience is simply something that I feel strongly about. In fact, there was an opinion a number of years ago of the U.S. Supreme Court, which I had occasion to deal with in a lecture I gave in Oxford uh, this past uh, uh, September, um, just before I came to Phoenix, by the way. Uh, And uh, conscience is not just something that you feel strongly about. Conscience is something that where you've internalized certain principles, whether they're religious, whether they're moral, but you've internalized certain principles so that you basically are saying that, that your moral standards are not something that you've invented yesterday or the day before, but they're something that you have internalized and you consider to be now your own, but it's not just simply something that you, uh, how you feel about the subject. You might feel very strongly about the subject, but it's more than a feeling about the subject. It's also based upon something uh, objective. So this becomes a question, what is, how does the Jewish tradition look upon this? And the second thing is, are we allowed to make common cause with an identifiable group of another religious tradition, especially Christianity, because Christianity so often in its history has been hostile to Judaism or tried to convert Jews and whatever, and therefore you can understand the, uh, some people having a discomfort uh, uh, with this. So let's deal with the question. Is, was she correct in terms of the Jewish tradition that she is going to refuse to recommend that somebody do something that she regards as contrary to morality, contrary to her morality. That's number one. And number two, what about this making common cause with the Christian medical and dental society? When it comes to making common cause with the Christian mental medical medical and dental society, one has to understand the following truth, which many people, many Christians and even more Jews, are shocked by, and that is that there is fundamentally no difference between Christian morality and Jewish morality. I'm talking about the principle, I'm not talking about the way people behave. Why? For a very simple reason. The great Maimonides, one of our greatest, greatest minds, died in 1204, was once asked the question, are you allowed to teach the Torah to Gentiles? Talmud asked that question. And his answer was, Christians, yes, Muslims, no. Why? And that's amazing because Maimonides really had much more uh, common philosophical ground with with, with Muslims. He said, because Christians accept the Torah as the word of God. Christians accept what we call Torah min hashamayim. So if they accept the Torah as the word of God, so why are they Christian? Why aren't they Jews? 
Maimonides says, well, on some of these theological points, like the Messiah and whatever, uh, they got some, what we consider to be inaccurate interpretations. Uh, I mean, on some of these big issues, they got some interpretations, but, but not on the major teachings of, let's say, the Ten Commandments. So therefore, under these circumstances, it is clear that we can make common cause because Christian, not only Maimonides says it, but Christian theologians, Thomas Aquinas, who was the greatest mind of the medieval Christianity, who was very much influenced by Maimonides, by the way, uh, said that that aspect of the Torah that Christians have kept, which is not the Sabbath, the dietary laws, Pesach, and whatever, but that which they've kept is basically what we call the moral teaching, what Judaism calls ben adam lechavero, the inner human relations. That is something that is based upon their common acceptance of the Torah and their common acceptance of the biblical teaching that Adam nivra b'tselem Elohim, that human being is created in the image of God and therefore human life in all of its aspects has a sanctity and an inviolability. That's what sanctity means. It means don't touch, don't affect, don't harm in any sort of way. So then the question was, well, what about this common morality? And the first thing is that the Jewish tradition teaches that that one does not in any way offer support to someone who you consider to be doing something which is immoral. The Jewish tradition quite clearly teaches, as the teaching of the Torah, that one is not allowed to kill innocent human life, whether it's somebody else's or your own. Just as you don't possess somebody else's life, you don't possess your own life. And this comes out in a number of different uh, ways, but one of the main sources is a passage in the, in the Talmud, in Masechet of Zarah 18a, where a rabbi is being burned at the stake by Romans, by non-Jews, and he's told by his students to hasten his death by opening his mouth so that the flames can consume him faster. And he makes a statement, Mutav mi yit, shana, mutav yit mi shanatnave al yichabel adam beatzmo. Better that the one, it should, life should be taken by the one who gave it. And Adam, not a Jew, but Adam, a human being, should not destroy his or her own life. So even though it's connected to certain biblical verses, but it's connected to biblical verses that actually apply before uh, the giving of the Torah. Uh, so that therefore, this is something that's considered to be what we would call universal teaching. This is something that clearly would resonate in the Christian tradition and perhaps other traditions as well, but certainly in the, in the Christian tradition, where the notion is that human life is sacred, that human life is something which we did not create and therefore we may not destroy, except in self-defense. So under those circumstances, 
This means that, as another Talmudic passage, also using the term Adam, human being, which is always when the Talmud uses Adam, they mean all human beings. So it's a Jewish perspective to be sure, but it's not a Jewish perspective that couldn't be adopted by others as well, at least those who share this, this biblical tradition with us. And the statement is, Ein Adam Rashai Lechabel Ba'atzmo. That a human being is not permitted, does not have the right to destroy himself or herself. Now this is a question that's very interesting because the question is based on the statement, Ein Adam Rashai, a human being is not authorized, is not entitled, does not have the right to destroy oneself. And that is, as one says, and as said before, the one who gave it is the only one who is, has the right to, to take it. Now this flies in the face, this flies in the face of much of secular morality, which basically says that we are self-possessed. That in effect, we've created ourselves, which is totally counterfactual. We didn't create ourselves. We have a certain control over our lives. But the idea that you've created yourself is something which permeates our secular society and it, it, in a number of different ways. Uh, we have today, and it's, 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 it's unfortunate psychologically, but I mean, certain, for example, they're preferred as transsexual people, I mean, who suddenly say that I don't, the body that I was given, I didn't create it myself, is really not, it might be male, but I'm really female, or, or female, and I'm really male. So this idea of self-possession is something which our tradition of the Hebrew Bible, which was, whose moral teaching was taken intact by, 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 by Christianity and many similarities to Islam as well, is something that flies in the face of this kind of uh, 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 an approach. And therefore, if this is something that I don't have the right to do, if I don't have the right to destroy myself, then it is something that I cannot authorize somebody else to do. Is there is a principle in the Talmud that basically ein shaliach ledevar avera. There is no agency for committing a sin. I can't authorize somebody to do something that I myself am not authorized to do. I mean, to give you an example of that, just in a religious context, the person who leads the religious services is called the shaliach tzibor the agent of the congregation. The agent of the congregation basically is somebody who has to be living under the same law as the congregation. And if the congregation is not authorized to be a congregation, they can't very well authorize somebody to be their agent. And how, I mean, how you define a minion or whatever, I know there are differences there, but very clearly, the notion of a congregation is that there are certain people who can be members of the congregation. I don't mean synagogue membership, I mean members of a, of, of, of a minion, and some who, who cannot. So you cannot very well transfer something that you do not have. 
So therefore, based upon that is the fact that this looks upon the idea that I can basically request that my physician, in effect, facilitate the taking of my taking of my own life, or actually do it on my behalf. That this is a notion that somehow a physician is my agent is something that I cannot very well transfer a right that I do not have. And yet, it's not just that suicide in Ontario and other places was not declared, uh, uh, was a crime that was taken off the books. But the question is, why was it ever on the books? Well, it was on the books, not because we should punish people who take their own lives. The Jewish tradition very clearly decided almost 200 years ago that basically that anyone who commits suicide is mentally ill, and therefore the notion of people being buried outside the cemetery and whatever is something that should be treated, they should be treated as any other ill person. But I will tell you as a rabbi, and I was a rabbi for 23 years, and my first rabbinic job was chaplain in the Federal Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C., and I wrote my dissertation on suicide, I can tell you the devastating effect this has on a family. The devastating effect it has on a family because basically is, did this person do this to get back at us? And why weren't we there to save them from themselves? But if you think, so therefore the, the idea that a person who did suicide is, 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 is something that is prohibited, it's not because we're going to punish people. The perpetrator is the victim, and the victim is already dead. And we certainly don't want to punish the family. And in fact, I will tell you that as, 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 as a rabbi, having to deal with, with several suicides in my congregations, the one thing that I tried to do as much as possible was that the funeral should be a burial service and there should not be a eulogy. What are you going to say? What are you going to say? That was my rabbinic uh, approach. The reason I'm mentioning all of this is I want to emphasize to you that I'm not just an ivory tower academic. Uh, I've been out there in the trenches. I still feel like I'm in the trenches, and, and it's happy. Most, many academics, especially who deal with ethics, especially are people who live in some kind of I, academic uh, bubble or ivory tower or whatever. So that therefore, this factor there uh, is that if one has a right to commit suicide, then it's a right that I can title somebody else, declare that person my agent to, uh, to, to do it. Uh, and even though there's supposed to be some safeguards and whatever, our experience of this from the Netherlands, from Belgium, is that these directives are ignored and that there are people eventually who are what's called euthanized in euthanasia, uh, even without their consent. This is what they would have wanted. You know, they, can't, they can't say it now. They didn't write a, 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 you know, a living will or, or whatever, but this is what uh, uh, they wanted. The, 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 these, these are the dangers uh, there that are very much the case. Now, when one talks about a right, this is where the reasoning comes in, where there's a cross between secular legal reasoning and the reasoning of the Jewish tradition. If I have a right to something that implies that others have a duty to respect my right. So that, for example, 
if I have a right to life, if I have a right not to be killed, then all of everybody else has one of two kinds of duties. One duty is not to impede my right, not to prevent me from exercising my right. The other is a duty to actually assist me in my life. Not only are you not impeding me, but you're actually, you're required to, to help me. Now, in this particular case, what is being argued by those who are filing this case, and I argue this in my affidavit, is they're not saying, those who are protesting, that they are going to prevent people from exercising this right. I'm not required to prevent some, even if I consider it to be something which is wrong, I am not required to prevent somebody from doing something if it is going to result in tremendous harm to myself. Now, if you prevent it, I mean, you, you, could, you could be user your medical license, you could uh, be imprisoned, uh, and whatever. I'm not required to do that. Any more than I'm required by Jewish law to save somebody else's life if it's a, a tremendous danger to my own. If I do it, fine. But that is a factor. But the fact that I am not to prevent a person from exercising their right does not mean in any way I have to aid them uh, in that right. And this has certain ramifications. I mean, for example, if one has a right to suicide, what if somebody uh, that I can see is about to jump off of a bridge and I, which is our normal instinct, want to rescue them? Maybe if this legal reasoning were followed, they could sue me for impeding their exercise of this right. So there's a lot of ramifications there uh, in terms of this. So what is being asked by those who are petitioning is not that we are going to prevent people from exercising this right. The only way that we could do it is through legal means, you know, some kind of legislation or, or, or whatever. That's always possible in a democracy. But we're asking not to be employed, even by suggestion to somebody else, or reference or referral to somebody else, something that violates our conscience, which here again is not our own creation, not just how I feel about it, but based upon my, my whole moral framework, which is something that I share with uh, a whole community uh, of others, and indeed other communities uh, as well. So this is what has uh, very much emerged uh, from this, and that is where we are at the present time. Now, the Jewish tradition indicates this as follows. Not only am I not supposed to actively aid somebody who's doing something that I consider wrong, but the biblical verse that says, You shouldn't put a stumbling block before the blind. Now, literally that means that you shouldn't harm somebody physically. But the rabbi said, we have other verses that can explain that. So it's interpreted in a kind of euphemistic way. You should not place a stumbling block before the blind. You should not in any way enable somebody to do something that you consider to be wrong, even by advice. You should not advise somebody or suggest to somebody or encourage somebody or refer somebody to something that 
you believe is wrong. So that therefore they're not asking that they prevent what is now considered to be a right, but simply that they are not active participants in, uh, uh, in, in this sort of, uh, uh, of, of, of activity. And this is something which, as I say, is going to be an issue in the United States. It's going to be an issue. Uh, it's already going to be an issue in Canada. And my lawyer friends tell me that it's going to reach the Supreme uh, uh, a Court of, uh, of Canada. Now, of course, I can understand why people think that there should be a, a right to, to kill yourself. We all have this horror of being basically hooked up to some machine in a strange place and whatever, uh, you know, imprisoned within our own bodies. That's, that's a perfectly understandable thing. And the Jewish tradition does not advocate needlessly keeping people alive. There's a principle called Shebi Alta said. There are certain times where you simply, as it were, let nature take its course. And here again, I'm going to get personal. I will think of the, the case of my own mother. My own mother, Allah Sholem, who died in 2010 at the age of 99, age of, age of 99, and we were blessed that she was compass mentis till the end. Her mind was there to the very end. I know her mind was there to the very end because they, the, the hospice, uh, she was living in a Jewish geriatric center, the, the hospice people sent somebody to visit her regularly, a gentleman who read poetry to her. And after the, the last week of her life, when my sister and I were kind of sitting in her room with her because we knew the end was near, uh, this gentleman left the room and my mother barely could lift her finger and she went like this to me and she said, come here. She whispered in my ear, she said, I hope he doesn't come back. I can't stand him. Uh, <laughs> my mother had, was always known for great opinions, uh, strong opinions and whatever, and we knew, we knew that was the case. However, okay, listen, this topic is so grim, I've got to get one little laugh. Okay, so, 99, my mother stopped eating. We don't know whether it's a conscious decision or not. Are you going to shove a feeding tube down the throat of a 99-year-old woman, which would probably tear the tissue and whatever? No. Nature took its course. And another factor is people do not have to suffer needless pain. You can treat the pain, and if a side effect of the pain is shortening the life, you're treating the pain. You're not killing, you're not intention. It's what's called double effect, uh, uh, the patient in that way. And in fact, one of the most vociferous opponents of this whole right to, to suicide, right to die, are the people from the hospice movement. Because death is an easy solution. Death is an easy solution. And this is something which instead of treating the illness and treating the pain, which and, and treating pain, the medical establishment is, it was, is just catching up with that. They used to not be interested in the pain. They wanted success. Sometimes it's not success, but to treating the pain and providing the person with a humane atmosphere for their last days, the hospice. If you've ever been to a good hospice, it is, if, it, I mean, the, the, the compassion and care for people at the end is something which is a credit and I've seen them, especially under the auspices of the Jewish community, and the people there who are really serving are people who are deeply religious Jews, regarded as their imperative to give people uh, uh, their last days as much comfort and support 
as uh, as possible. So uh, we understand this is not needlessly keeping people alive. But the question really becomes as follows. The argument for the right to suicide and therefore the obligation, the duty of physician to to assist or, or, or make a referral, which is being argued, sounds very democratic. Autonomy. I'm in charge of my own life. I make my decisions. Uh, I am the one who has to live with my life, etc., etc. I am the master of my own fate, uh, as, as it were. And that's something which is, lies at the heart of, of, of uh, autonomy. Uh, I mean, one of the things we take most seriously, I mean, we had this, you know, this uh, uh, recent election uh, here in, in, in the United States. And by the way, I'm a, I'm a dual citizen. I'm both a Canadian and U.S. citizen, so uh, I voted. Don't ask me how I voted. Uh, I, half my family voted one way, half voted the other way. Uh, so, okay. But the, the, the point is as follows. We regard this as a sacred duty because it's exercise of the most autonomy we get to, uh, uh, to authorize. And in fact, I remember uh, my late father and mother. Do you know that in every election from 1932 to 1964, they canceled each other's vote out. <laughs> My mother's family were what they called rock rib Republicans. Yes, they were Jewish Republicans. And my father's family was a Democrat. And we asked them, why bother? They voted in the same precinct. You know, <laughs> why bother? You know what they said? This is our duty as free American citizens. We are exercising our as effect autonomy to be able to choose. I, I think that's very admirable. I mean, I, there are many things about my parents that were admirable, but I think it's one of the things admirable. I'm happy to, uh, uh, to, to, to talk about it. So this sounds wonderful. Autonomy, you can make the choice. Death with dignity. Although, as a, as a famous uh, Christian thinker said, there's no dignity in death. Death is the ultimate indignity, uh, no matter how you look at it. Okay. So this is, sounds wonderful. But I think that there's a subtext here, and I think that the subtext is the exact opposite. People live and survive and flourish only, or let's say especially, when they're convinced that there is somebody out there who wants them to live and survive and flourish. There are children that are born, for example, in orphanages. This has been studied, especially in Eastern Europe, where there are a lot of orphans. Who literally die for no physical reason, because nobody has exercised any interest in their living. In other words, our desire to live is because there's somebody out there who wants us to live. Whether it's our parents, our spouse, our children, or, or whatever. And when we sense that really nobody out there wants us to live, unless we have very deep religious faith that some other God wants me to live, but even under those circumstances, then there becomes a message is that basically I'm really useless, I'm really a, a drag, uh, I'm a burden, and whatever. And basically, I should do the right thing and get myself out of the way. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. 
I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. This is the message that comes through. This is the what we call the subliminal message, the message just below the surface. It's basically not your autonomy that we respect, but basically you should exercise your autonomy and stop being a burden. And many people, you know, feel that I don't want to be a burden on my children. And I can understand that. But on the other hand, why shouldn't you be a burden on your children? They were a burden on you. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, we are dependent on other people, and we should not be embarrassed by our dependence. But it's all the difference in the world when there is this question, is somebody. And when society says that basically you should exercise that right, what happens is that a right frequently becomes a duty. It's not only that you have the choice to do it, but this is what you ought to do. Not what you may do, but what you ought to do. And that is what is frightening. That is what is frightening. And it's frightening on a number of, of different issues. I mean, end-of-life decisions, why should we have all of these hospitals for people you know, who are uh, on, on the brink of, uh, 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 of death? Uh, uh, I'm sure that the insurance companies would love something like this. Because basically, they would say at a certain point, we're going to stop insuring you. You reach a certain stage of life, we're going to stop, cut off the insurance. And if you cut off the insurance, uh, you know what that's going to happen because the economic factors are going to uh, uh, play in. There was one, years ago, there was uh, once a cartoon in the New Yorker of a patient in a hospital and the doctor said, uh, 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 there's nothing we can do and whatever, the person seems to be lost and whatever, and a student nurse goes in and in five minutes comes out and the person's getting up and everything and... Uh, uh, and, and seems to be awake. Well, what did you tell him? She said, I told him that if he didn't wake up, the insurance benefits would stop. Uh, so under those circumstances, this is something which the Jewish tradition, the famous words that Moses says at the end of his life to Jewish people, you shall choose life in order that you live, you and your children. And to a large extent, it's not only that you want to live, and even if you don't want to live, you certainly want your children to live. But it's also do your children, and I mean the, the next generation, not just necessarily your own individual children, do they want you to live? Do they want you to live? And in a society where to such an extent we've lost contact with traditions and whatever. Uh, I, I, I remember uh, my grandfather when I was growing up, uh, and he died when I was nine years old. Uh, but I, I, I remember it very, very well. Uh, uh, he was an old man, he was a widower, uh, and whatever. But I know what I got from him. What I got from him. Uh, and when I would visit him, and it, it, he was in a nursing home, how he would light up, because I really wanted, I wanted to hear from him. He, he, he had a whole past that, that I wanted to hear about. It was, it, was part of, it was my past too, and I could only get it through him. So therefore, the message that society sends is not a message as we respect your autonomy. It's basically is that you have a duty to not to live, but to 
uh, kind of uh, remove yourself. And this is something that I think that the Jewish tradition, which brought to the world God's message in the Torah, that human beings are created in the image of God, that human life is sacred, which does not mean that we don't treat pain, it does not mean that we take extraordinary measures, but that we regard every human life as something which is precious, that we don't want to let go of, uh, at least by active means. This is something that I think uh, lies at the heart of what we are uh, talking about here. And therefore, I think that it is something which I hope uh, will have an effect uh, in terms of the type of decisions that, uh, that our society makes. And this is really a case where Judaism does make a tremendous difference. Thank you. Okay, I'm told that we have uh, questions, and uh, so uh, who wants to uh, uh, break, uh, break the ice? Yeah? What does the Jewish perspective say about surgeries and additional medical treatments? Well, the, the, this, 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 this becomes an interesting question. Let, let, let me give you an, uh, an example of that. Uh, because I don't want to sound... I mean. There's usually, you know, we're forcing these people to stay alive and suffer and, and, and whatever. Let, let, let me give you an example. Uh, and the Jewish position, uh, there's usually it's a Jewish position. Now, a, a, a Jewish position can be anything. It's got to have something, yet, you know, within the bounds of tradition. But let, let me give you an, uh, an example. I think this will be helpful. We have a large, uh, are, are you folks from Toronto, by the way? Uh, okay, you know Baycrest. We have a magnificent Jewish geriatric center there. I mean, m magnificent. It is really inspiring. And in fact, the Jewish chaplain there, Rabbi Turin, I'm, I'm in San Diego for the Associated Jewish Studies, is going to be with us over uh, Shabbat. He's one of the two Jewish uh, chaplains at, at, at Baycrest. Okay. About, ooh, about 15 years ago, um, the medical director of Baycrest, um, a... Jew originally from New York, who came from a very, very secularist, Yiddishist background, no religious connection whatsoever, happened to take a course with me that I taught at the University of Toronto. And he especially was impressed by the fact that on some of these issues, there are differences of opinion. I mean, not, not any opinion, but differences of opinion, that everybody who's religious doesn't march in, in, in lockstep. So he decided to have a debate between myself and Rabbi Professor Avram Steinberg, who is the leading, uh, was also a medical doctor, uh, halachic authority at the Shari Tzedek Hospital, which is an Orthodox hospital in Jerusalem. And we were to, he wanted to show the staff there, which is largely non-Jewish, although a lot of Jews, but largely non-Jewish, that two religious thinkers in the Jewish tradition don't necessarily march in lockstep. And this was the following case. Listen carefully to this case. An 82-year-old woman living in Baycrest was told that she needed a pacemaker and some other thing where there had to be surgery with the heart. 
And that if she didn't have it, if she didn't have it, she wouldn't die necessarily tomorrow, but her life chances would be considerably diminished. This woman was a Holocaust survivor. More than a Holocaust survivor, she was one of the victims of the medical experiments of the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele, Yamach Shemo May his name be blotted out, as we say about all evil people. And she said the following. She said, nobody is going to ever tie me down to a table and cut me open again. They had her examined by the psychiatrist. It wasn't clinical depression. She didn't say, I want to die. She said, she's not going to cut me open. What do you, excuse me? Oh, yeah, she was able to, and, and, and it became a moot point because in Canada, uh, you have to give, I'm, I'm sure probably here in the States, you have to give informed consent. They, they can't perform surgery unless you, you know, give info, especially when you're a compass mentis. Okay. Now, here we had a difference of opinion. Rabbi Steinberg said that the Jewish tradition says that you are basically to prevent, a, to do every, prevent a person from imminent death, and you're supposed to do everything in, in your power to rescue a person. You're not supposed to stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. Okay. And that therefore, because of that, at least according to Jewish law, even though it wouldn't be the case in Canadian law, we had an obligation to save her life. And had this been in Israel, even though Israel's not under halakha, it probably would have been more easily enforceable there because the, generally the secular authorities don't want to get involved with the, uh, you know, uh, religious authorities. Okay. My argument was as follows. My argument was that this woman did not want to die. That the psychological trauma of being cut open, you know, knowing that she's cut open, that's what they do here at a table. And well, no, but it's not mangled. It's the fact of it. It was something that was so traumatic to her that in Jewish tradition she had the right. And the thing that I cited was as follows. Towards the end of the Talmudic tractor Yoma, which talks about uh, Yom Kippur, what if your doctor says to you that you should not fast on Yom Kippur? Bad for your health. Now you're diabetic or you have to take some medication. You're not sure you can fast on Yom Kippur. I get this question. Even though I'm not the rabbi in my synagogue, I still get halacha questions and I get it every year. How much? And, I, and, I don't, and can I take a mouthful? And, 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 and these are questions that are, that are of, of, of concern. Okay. Okay. So, if your doctor says you should not fast on Yom Kippur and you say, I have never eaten on Yom Kippur in my life, and I don't care, and if I die, etc., etc., you are supposed to listen to the directive of the physician, because we have a principle in halakha, suffik nefashot lahakel, when it's a question of doubtful human life, it's always the benefit of the doubt is in favor of the life. And in fact, there's, there's a wonderful story about that. My late revered teacher, Professor Shaul Lieberman, Zechot Tzadik Libracha, was once asked, called by a Jewish physician on, on, on Erev Yom Kippur, he was the, many consider him the world's greatest Talmudist, 
that the widow of a certain great Jewish scholar, he told her she cannot fast on Yom Kippur, and she said, I don't care if I die, I'm never eat, I've never eaten on Yom Kippur, et cetera, et cetera. He said, what can I do with her? He said, I'll call her on the phone. Called her on the phone and said, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, I didn't see you in shul on Rosh Hashanah. Well, you were not well. I'm sorry. You should, you know, you should have a refuah shlema, a recovery. And he said, I just want to tell you that tonight, when you bench, when you say Birkat Mazon after your meal, be sure you include Yalav the prayer for Yom Kippur. Now, Yalav is a prayer that you say like on Pesach or, or Rosh Chodesh or Shavuot or whatever, but, there's, but the notion that you actually say the blessing, the grace after meals for a meal that you eat on Yom Kippur, why? Because eating that meal is as big a mitzvah as somebody who can fast not eating the meal. In other words, what he told her was brilliant psychology. Not are you or are you not. I'm telling you this is how you're going to do it, and you're going to do it, and this is how you're going to do it. And apparently he won the day. Okay. However, getting back to that passage in the Talmud, if my physician says to me, nah, you, you can eat on Yom Kippur. And I say, I can't. They quote a beautiful biblical verse, Lev Yodea Marat Nafsho that the heart knows its own pain. The heart knows its own pain. In other words, you know your own condition. And therefore, I said, based upon that, I would say that if she said that this is so traumatic, which maybe could, you know, could kill her also, I mean, uh, there's something that stressful and traumatic, that she therefore had the right not to kill herself, but to resist something that would cause great pain. In other words, you, it's, it's somebody, for example, who is dying and in great pain, I mean, if you give enough morphine, that is going to, in effect, hasten the death. But your intention is to, to cure the pain, not to kill the person. So here's an example of something where there were two different uh, 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 points of view. <coughs> now, the question becomes as follows. So which view do you follow? Um, well, Here's something interesting about the Jewish tradition. If you basically go to a rabbi, whom you consider to be your authority, and you say, in effect, Yilamdeinu Rabbeinu, you know, tell me what to do, then according to halacha, you are obligated, morally obligated, to follow that advice. However, if you know a little something, and you know sources, you don't ask that person. You say, you consult. You don't ask. You say, well, we could do it this way. We could do it that way. What is your opinion? And you factor that in your decision. But you have to know enough to make that kind of a decision. You have to know enough. And that's what we, sh we should encourage. We should encourage people that basically that they should know, which you consult. You know, it's, it's like your doctor. I mean, your doctor... I mean, if your doctor, if, if you came to your doctor and your doctor said, I don't know how to treat you, I'm going to call Dr. So-and-so, then go to Dr. So-and-so. You know, but on the other end, if the doctor said, look, this is a very serious case, I'm going to consult my colleagues. Well, you would want a doctor to consult his colleagues, if, uh, his or her colleagues, if it's an important issue, or your lawyer to consult colleagues if it's something important. But you'd like to think that they have a, an opinion, and they, they know something. So under these circumstances, this becomes uh, uh, the question. And uh, uh, 
there are a number of rabbis. I see here uh, Alan Roth, who's an old friend of mine from, uh, he used to uh, serve as a, a supply rabbi on the high holidays in, in Woodmere, Long Island. Uh, but several rabbis uh, it, there, you know, will call me with an opinion. I'm mean, going to ask for my opinion, but they're, they're going to ask me my opinion already knowing what the, you know, they're, ask, they're not asking me to decide the issue. They're asking me to consult with them. Unless there are certain cases where a rabbi, for a variety of reasons, doesn't want to make the decision and wants to defer it to somebody that he considers to be more learned or, or, or whatever. So, so this is how Jewish moral reasoning uh, works. So in terms of this, when it comes to these issues, they're, not de they're, deci they're decided in the concrete, not in the abstract. In other words, if I'm asking a question, I want to know the, the, the facts in the case. Because it's not just something that you put in your file and, you know, in a little box here, a little box there. You have to know all of the, uh, uh, the facts. So something like this, I wouldn't give an answer over the phone. Uh, I want to see the people. I want to talk to them and whatever. I remember uh, years ago when I was a rabbi in Baltimore, I went to a meeting of rabbis. And I said, uh, I got the most interesting call uh, last afternoon. A woman called me with a question involving a certain sexual matter, you know, people are so squeamish about and whatever. And I told her that, Madam, I mean, whom am I talking to? I'd rather not identify myself. I said, I want you to come into my office. I'm going to just discuss with you. I mean, I don't do this over the phone. Well, eight other rabbis got the same call. Uh, I mean, you, you don't shop around uh, in terms of, you know, whoever is going to tell you, uh, you know, uh, what you want to hear if you consider yourself to be part of a, of a Jewish moral framework. In other words, just as a congregation, you know, chooses a rabbi or whatever, you in your own life should really, under these circumstances, uh, uh, you know, decide on these issues who... Uh, you know, it is that you look upon to give you what you consider to be, what you hope is the accurate uh, guidance of the Jewish tradition. And the answer is not going to jump off the pages of a book. The answer involves judgment and decision making, but so the person's got to know something in order to be able to make the, uh, the, uh, the decision. Yes, sir. Can you talk a little bit about putting on uh, to life support systems and then more importantly taking off of life support Yeah, the, those, are, those are complicated, complicated questions. Uh, one of the best things uh, that has been done with, at Shari Tzedek Hospital is that basically, you see the problem with the life support is are you really keeping the person alive or is, is, are you keeping tissue alive and whatever. And what I've been told there that actually that when a person is put on a respirator that it is put on some kind of a timer. And therefore the timer comes in and if the person can breathe spontaneously uh, then even without the respirator, and if they can't, this is the case. So these, these are, 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 are complicated questions that I'm just giving you some general outlines. But please, nobody here leave and say that, you know, somebody's, that, 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 you know, Rabbi Professor Novak said such and such, and therefore we should do uh, uh, such and such. There's a whole question of how one uh, applies this. But I'm going to say, think in terms of this general structure. And the, and the interesting thing is, talk about autonomy. The more you know, the more freedom you really have. Because then you know what your options are. You know what your options are, and you can, with your rabbi, not just tell me what to do, but advise me. It's the difference between advice and admonition. And 
That is how the Jewish tradition encourages us to be more learned. And it has a practical effect in terms of not just information, but actually empowering us to be informed Jews, not just in our heads, but in our, in our practice. Yes, sir, you had a question. So, I think the argument about physician-assisted suicide mm -hmm. has less to do with suicide mm -hmm. and more to do with allaying suffering and allowing people to have certain options, certain choices. You acknowledge that, that there were certain choices that you found acceptable, mm -hmm. the decision to forego food and water. Well, I, 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 because it would do more harm than good. How would it do more harm than good? Oh, I was told by the attending physician uh, that they would have been loath to do it, that it would have, uh, that they, it's more likely that she would have choked. Uh, I mean, here again, I'm talking about a specific, I, you know, I can't go into all the details of the case. But, but the, po the point is uh, always to alleviate suffering, but not to facilitate an, an, an active choice to, to die, even though the law permits that. But we don't have to be part of things that we did. That we Judaism is going to be vibrant. It has to adapt to changing times, right? No. No. Quite that. Ju Judaism. Ju we disagree about something very fundamental. Absolutely. Because, if, because I, don't live, I live my life by moral principles that I derive, that are derived from halakha, but I don't follow the letter of the law of halakha. And fortunately, within Judaism, we have denominations that allow for some variability in that. And I'm True. saying that I, I think the decision to forego food and liquid, the decision to use morphine to the degree where it mm -hmm. may hasten a person's exit, mm -hmm. are not appreciably different than a patient who has a fatal diagnosis, like Brittany Menard, the 29-year-old, uh, who you probably have heard of from mm -hmm. California, who mm -hmm. had a, uh, yeah. an a brain tumor, glioblastoma. Yeah. She had operated, she had radiation, she mm -hmm. had chemotherapy, and she made, and, and facing the last few months of life, she mm -hmm. made the conscious decision to move to a state that had uh, death or kidney loss, mm -hmm. and chose to uh, manage the time and circumstances of her death. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't, I don't see that as very far away from the other two options that you found acceptable. And, and that is what... Well, the, but, 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 yeah, but, but, but you know, in killing, intention is, is the whole thing. The difference between murder and manslaughter is all in the intention. Uh, so that, is, that, that becomes a, uh, a factor. Um, I think that a, lo a lot of this, a lot of this is how we face life in general, but especially the end of life, very much depends upon how we view what comes after life. If you believe, as the Jewish tradition teaches, that after your life is over, you will have to answer to God for what you've done in life. As the Talmud says, machnisin adam ladin, and they're asked, did you deal in good faith with the world and yourself? Then I think that a person's going to have a very different view of the end of life than if a person thinks that the end of life is nothing but oblivion. Um, let's look at it this way. Um, if you think that the afterlife is nothing but oblivion, then your idea of a good death, a mitah yafa, as the Talmud says, is going to be that you're going to you know, in your ripe old age, but before you're in your dotage, 
as it were, you're going to go to sleep one night and not wake up. That's how most people look at it. If you believe that you're going to answer to God for what you did in life with yourself and all others, you're going to want to be awake and aware and at that moment be prepared as the didoi, the deathbed confession, look at it in an old-fashioned sitter, biadcha kidruchi, I returned my life to God. Uh, it's going to be a whole different attitude of how you're going to look at, 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 at the end of life. In other words, halacha is not just a bunch of rules. It's informed by very basic theological, if you will, ideas uh, and, and whatever. And granted, there are little differences, and that's why we have, it's actually a, a term that uh, Christian uh, moralists use, it's called casistry. And that is not blanket answers, but not any answer. You have to look at the case and, and then decide which principles from the tradition are applicable and not applicable. It's, 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 a, it's a judgment call. Uh, but people have to uh, you know, be aware of, of what this is. I found as a rabbi, by the way, that I had some of the most profound um, theological discussions with people in the hospital and at shivas. People in the hospital and at shivas. I remember once um, uh, visiting a, a, a woman in, in the hospital and she was talking about her coming surgery, and she said, I have perfect faith in my physician. And I said, trust your physician and have your perfect faith in God. Uh, humans are humans, and, and, and whatever, and should not be the object of emunah uh, perfect faith. So these are, 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 are things. And one of the things about these type of decisions um, is that... Uh, it's, it's not, we, we can't, you know, I mean, if, if I disagree with you uh, about it or, or whatever, it's not something that the Jewish tradition advocates that, you know, I, I can basically get you arrested. I mean, even if we had a system that was run out, there, there are certain things that are left to the person to decide, but not decide willy-nilly, not decide just, you know, this way or that way, but basically your moral choice. We are responsible for our moral choices. We are responsible for our moral choices, and that's why we should make them in seriousness. So if, that, if you consider that to be a moral choice, then that's something that should be thought out. Uh, and clearly, the people who have made that choice try to say that we're not permitting everything. You know, uh, there are certain things that should be done, certain things. I mean, if some, everything is permitted, then you don't have any morality at all. Uh, and I, I very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, respect that. But in a situation, and that, that's why I, I think, uh, in the case of this woman not, you know, not being tied down to the table and cut open, uh, I think this was an example of my, the, my interpretation rather than the other interpretation, which respected, I wouldn't say autonomy in a strong sense, uh, but certainly freedom of choice and, uh, and, and, and whatever. And that is, uh, you know, I think something that is, is, is that effect. And I, I hope that I, I, in no way, and I tried it too with, with, you know, with, with, with individual cases and from my own experience, uh, that, you know, that I, I'm not at all indifferent to, to, to suffering or uh, the notion of avoiding feudal uh, uh, you know, type of, uh, of, of, of treatments. Yes, ma'am. You know, I would see a relationship with a physician as being more of a collaborative partnership than what I think that you're describing as a, as a more absolute hierarchy. 
where where physicians would be or rabbis would be in a position of laying out a range of alternatives and making the individual feel comfortable with the choices that they make rather than saying than prescribing this is what you should do. Well they, they I don't know whether I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but I thought that that was your well, 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 well I, I, you know, I, I, that's really not the impression I could created. In fact, uh, the case that I cited of the woman, you know, the Holocaust survivor, is that it was her decision. Uh, but on the other hand, um, when somebody asks you, uh, you know, uh, what do you think I should do, you have to say what you think they, they, they ought to do. Ultimately, it's their decision. But if they're asked, yeah, you know, it always reminded me. Somebody once uh, uh, said to me, um, um, "Who are you to tell people what to do? Who are you to tell people what to do?" I said, "Because they asked me." <laughs> if anybody, somebody doesn't ask me my opinion, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to offer it, you know, uh, and, and and whatever. But I don't think it's a question of people comfortable. Our moral decisions are not frequently comfortable. A decision that's made, you pay a price for decision, no matter what you decide. It does not come for free. And to simply, I think that one of the mistakes, and here uh, of, let's, I'll try to be diplomatic, of more liberal interpretations of Judaism, as well as other religions, is that in basic areas of like, like life and death, sexuality and whatever, people are basically saying, well, do what you think is right when people are really looking, even if they don't obey it, even if they otherwise are looking. So the question of changing, no, certain things of applications change, but I think that what people are looking for in religion, and this, this would indicate the incredible resurgence of Orthodox Judaism in my own lifetime, is that in a world where everything seems to be up for grabs, there's something comforting knowing that there is a certain body of the tradition that does not change. Does not change because it's considered to be God-given. Uh, a lot of a change in interpretations. I mean, there's a, we're not just you know robots that you know uh, follow law, but uh, I think that people have to realize no matter what decision they make, uh, it doesn't come for free. Well, but I, I also think that there's a there's a middle ground between being so absolute and being but but but. but Well, of course it's mine. Of course it's mine. But I, do you think I'm pressuring you? No, I'm just, uh, I think that that's one position that you've laid out. Not that you're pressuring me, but that, well, that, I, things, I, yeah. that, that takes away some elements of free choice. Well, I doesn't think, because clearly people can choose to, to, to follow it or not to follow it. Uh, and the more you know, the more you're going to know what the options are. But ultimately, a decision has to be made by some criteria or else it's just a, a leap in the void. Uh, so, I mean, in that way, uh, you know, th this is, uh, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, very much the case. And uh, uh, it is, 
I mean, authoritarian is only when I'm basically forcing my view on somebody uh, who doesn't have a choice <laughs> to follow it or not. But as far as I know, uh, uh, I'm not doing that. And actually, I recognize um, in a number of areas, I would say that, halakhically speaking, um, I'm somewhat liberal. Uh, for example, I, 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 I think that there should be separation of religion and state in, in, in Israel. I, I think that the, the notion of a, of a rabbinate, which basically gets its power from a secular government, is, is a contradiction in, 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 in terms. So that is certainly not a, you know, an authoritarian uh, type of, uh, 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 of position, but uh, uh, it is something that, as we say, no matter what you decide, it should be decided by criteria that, not, that are not just of your own making today or yesterday, uh, and that none of this comes for free. No matter what you decide, it does not come for free. Uh, that is the, uh, uh, you know, the, the price we pay for being human beings uh, endowed with, uh, uh, with free choice. Free choice involves responsibility. Yeah. So I've heard some, some of the comments tonight, too. I mean, I think there's a, a little bit of a struggle here just with the title um, of, the, of this talk tonight, you know, Physician-Assisted Suicide in Jewish Thought. I think, I mean, I really think there are a lot of um, multiple issues involved here. Are we talking about, when I read the title, I'm thinking are about actively proscribing a cocktail of drugs that a person such as Brittany Maynard, example, is provided, who is speaking cogently as we are here, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna write the prescription and say, here is, like she had this, the, the packet, and you can go home and take this by yourself. Then we have the second issue of, you mentioned suicide by yourself, then su will you help me commit suicide, and, by drugs, or then by what seems like less um, active means by withholding food, water, antibiotics. And to me, these are not, these cannot all be lumped into the same no. thing. Maybe you can say that. And my last point is, at least as it was portrayed in the press, I don't obviously, well, not obviously, but I don't know this Brittany Maynard, but they certainly got a lot of public CNN, that type of thing that you made a comment that if you have a, I thought if I understood correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you have a supportive environment around you, then you really wouldn't want to take your life. And that story was portrayed that the mother and the spouse were 100% totally supportive of poor Brittany having a glioblastoma multiforme, knowing that what this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can't put that together. No, 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 I mean, there, there are a lot of issues. I'm talking about the general attitude in uh, society. Because now in Belgium and in Holland and whatever, people are euthanizing who are not suffering from, you know, I've gotten too old, I'm a little depressed. I mean, this is the factor. But, but just let, let me, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know the, the, that, that 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 point of view uh, of uh, you know there are, are are many factors there, and at, at at the risk, I sort of have a certain moral dilemma. Uh, now, my moral dilemma is as follows: Should I quote my own? Should I refer to my own book or not? 
Sure. Well, okay. And I, I feel better because I'm not selling it tonight. <laughs> okay, okay. I have a book called The Sanctity of Human Life, published by Georgetown University Press 2007, which deals with this extensively. And I, I have about four different scenarios of what could, could happen there. But the point I want to make is as follows. And this is another point that I was thinking of making, but not in the talk today. If you think about physician assisted suicide, Suicide is about one of the easiest things to do. Put a plastic bag over somebody's head. And clearly, we don't usually punish people now for what we call mercy killings, you know, their, their own relative did it. Why is it that somebody wants a physician? And the reason, I think, is as follows. People, somehow or other, want to figure that an authority figure, and doctors have our authority figures, that this, you know, it's not really, you know, I'm not really doing something wrong because after all, this authority figure said that this is something that I really ought to do and they will facilitate it. Uh, like this woman who said, you know, I have absolute faith in my, in, 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 in my physician. It's, it becomes an authority figure says this uh, and therefore somehow or other uh, I am less vulnerable because many people deep down are very morally conflicted even about this, this, this type of question. And I think that this becomes the, 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 the whole factor. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example of it. Uh, my own family physician, I mean, who happens to be, a, I mean, we go to the same synagogue and whatever, or we're good friends, and his, his attitude was not the type of arguments I presented. He said, I as a physician was not trained to kill people. I was a physician, that, that was not my training. That's not, I'm, that's not why I'm in it. Um, uh, and that's because of a problem. You know that, for example, it is very, very difficult, uh, for example, to get uh, nurses to work in abortion clinics because somehow or other, just, you know, you see the, the parts and the whatever and, and this sort of thing. I mean, that's another question altogether, but this sort of thing. So I mean, these are, 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 you know, very much are the questions there, but I think that this notion of, since we not only, suicide is not a crime, but you know, the so-called mercy killing, we used to call it. We're not, you know, the, the person whose wife, you know, uh, and everything else like that, who just left the pills, you know, by the, by, by the bedside or, or whatever. But that we want an authority figure. Uh, and physicians have incredible, like, godlike, you know, uh, 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 authority and everything. I think that that suggests that the moral issue is not quite as simple as, uh, as we think it. But I certainly didn't come here tonight to decide, in order to decide all these questions. I just wanted to give you a kind of a general uh, point of view and basically why I came to the aid of this person who, I'm not forcing my view on, they asked me. They asked me uh, uh, and whatever. And uh, I felt that, uh, that this is something that, uh, that it's my responsibility as, as, as as a rabbi, and I, I'm still a rabbi. I just uh, I'm a full-time academic now, but I just went from general practice to a specialty. Uh, anyway, yes, ma'am. I have a question that concerns um, when Ariel Sharon had his stroke. Yeah. And they kept him alive yeah. in a comatose yeah. for more than six years. Yeah. Because the Orthodox would not allow them to pull the plug, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I mean, well, it probably wasn't tortured him. He was probably totally comatose. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, here again, an individual case I can't comment on. But 
I think that if it had been anybody else than other Ariel Sharon, uh, there, there would have been other solutions uh, to it as well. Uh, I mean, I think that's the, his, that was his problem in Ariel Sharon. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I, no, I, 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 there, there's also, you know, there's, there's also that factor. There, there, there are people, uh, you know, who at times uh, don't want to let go, and uh, even when, when, when you can. So, I mean, here again, this is, you know, I, I don't have a ready-made solution, but, but I, I agree with you. There was something, I don't have all the facts, but there's something a little strange about it. Yeah. Simply, you, you made reference, Rabbi, to that it seems in directing your, your response to, to Ron that there are those people that believe you answer to God when you don't. Yeah. And there's those people that necessarily don't believe that. You yeah. believe in yeah. nothingness. Yeah, yeah, oblivion. It's my, it's my belief uh -huh. that most of the people really both Jewish and Christian and Muslim, some mm -hmm. people in my family, mm -hmm. fall somewhere in between that, simply because of the word belief. They want to hope, they try to live their life, mm -hmm. like they're put here for a reason and have a purpose, Yeah. and hopefully practice their religion or practice their faith and their prayer in, in, a, in a belief that that is real. Mm -hmm. And at the, at the very same time, as the world modernizes and free will has allowed mankind to discover more and more things that we're capable of trying to control and try to help, they fall somewhere in between this. So that, just as an odd example, if the person that we were talking about in California were Jewish, I don't believe she was, but if she were, right. and she knew in two months she was going to be dying, and her mm -hmm. family did, and she was probably going to die a horrible, horrible way of dying, mm -hmm. and made this choice, this person wouldn't necessarily be somebody who doesn't believe they're going to answer to God. They may be somebody who believes that through man's work, in God's image, has come up with ways of alleviating this problem, and chooses to say the Shema before she dies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I, I, I don't think neither the orthodox, ultra-orthodox, whatever you want to pin it, take on this that might come from Old Torah or from Talmud or things from modernity that say, well, there's nothing out there. Mm -hmm. I don't think that fits most criteria because, you know, there's the old story of the person who's the, uh, the true atheist and the plane's going down, and trust me, they're praying. So I think it'll. I, I think it's a very. I think you did a very nice job of representing a certain aspect and point of view on this. But I really think it's a very big gap in how this is approached when it's your time and it really faces you. Well, that's true. I mean, nobody knows how they're going to face lots of things until they face it. Uh, the question is, you know, what kind of preparation uh, you could possibly can have. But actually, you are, um, uh, you know, that the, the the month before Rosh Hashanah, we start saying the twenty seventh Psalm, and the seventy seventh Psalm ends, "Lulehemanti el rot betuvanai beretz chayim." 
Oh, would, would it that I were certain, which we, which we believe means faith, to see the good. Kaveh hope. And it is a hope. It's, an, it's, a, it's not a, a, a belief in the sense that I have absolute, sure, how could I possibly? It's not part of my, my experience. But the hope that there is, is more, and granted, I mean, if a person could be a religious person who decided that, yes, this was the right thing to do, and that they might have to answer to God for it, and they're convinced that they, that they can answer properly, that's, that's a decision. But that's a decision that is a much more Jewishly serious than basically it's kind of just up to me, you know, to decide uh, uh, what, I, what I want to do. Because that's already acknowledged there's something transcendent, there's something beyond. So I agree with you. The 27th Psalm says, Oh, were it that I believed, or were it that I were certain that I do hope. And uh, so you are, as we say, you're, you're in sync with the 27th Psalm. <laughs> yeah, look it up. <laughs> okay, well, uh, anyway, thank you very much for, uh, for having me and uh, continue on with your uh, good work. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.